Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From the sunny halcyon days of fallen Minnesota, it's Election Shock Therapy. I'm Chris Moore. And joining me on this brief discussion are the MKs. And before I introduce uh, Matthew Cookham and Mitchell Crum, uh, let me just remind people that we have a little bit of a format change here from our previously uh, scheduled election shock therapies. We are using this new format to basically do a quick hit on a deep dive of a narrow issue that we think people could really benefit from understanding more about. And today is the very easy and very simple uh, issue to understand, uh, issue of abortion rights in America. If you couldn't tell the sarcasm in my voice, this is going to be tough. So here to help us out with this, um, from the University of South Carolina Aiken, is Mitchell Crum. Hey, Mitchell. How's it going? Hey, all right. We also have Matthew Cookham here at Bethel University with me. Matthew, how's you doing? How are you doing? I'm doing fine. This is this is gonna be great. And to be sure, we're not gonna solve everything. We're just talking about a couple of recent well, recent Supreme Court um, issues that have come up. So exactly. it's gonna be nice and nice and narrow. And so if you've been ambiently following the news, you'll know that all of a sudden um, issues of abortion um, and, and pro-life and pro-choice debates um, have been much more in the news recently, usually to reserve those kinds of conversations for election years when uh, that conversation <laughs> about abortion spikes every four years. But we're having it right now because of a recent, what I've heard to be called a shadow docket case um, that the Supreme Court sort of decided. So Mitch, help me out here. What is a shadow docket case and what was actually determined uh, by the Supreme Court? All right. So I guess the first thing, yeah, what is the shadow docket? So the shadow docket is kind of just a pet name or sort of like a slang term in some ways, just a shorthand um, for essentially the Supreme Court's uh, emergency emergency docket. So basically, normally when the Supreme Court hears a case, um, it takes a long time. It's usually a process of years, um, you know, basically partially to work its way through the federal court system. And then even once the Supreme Court agrees to hear a case, sometimes it can take a year or two for the lawyers to get their briefs filed, for oral arguments to happen, and then for the judge justices to actually render a, a decision. And so that's that that process can take a long time. And sometimes you basically um, you need something quicker. Um, there's some kind of pressing legal issue. There's something that's come up that's just really, really immediate. And so the court has a process by which you can emergency appeal a particular law or decision to say, hey, we need like immediate relief or we need a law to be stopped temporarily or things like that. Is that because these issues are time sensitive or because they're particularly acute? Um, well, both usually. Usually okay. if it's, you know, it needs to be something that's at certainly like pressing in terms of substance. Like if it's not pressing in terms of substance, the court's going to be like, we don't care. Um, but it also needs to be time sensitive, right? So if it's, if it's time sensitive and it's also like pressing, then, then it goes to this emergency docket. And normally 
once a case hits the emergency uh, emergency docket, then a single justice who is over a particular area or section district of the country will, will basically make a decision about that case. They can decide on their own, um, at, you know, basically whether they want, you know, uh, they can oftentimes make a decision on their own as far as what's going to happen. Um, but then if they want, they can also kick it up to the entire court and the entire court. And if the entire court wants to take the case, they can also say, hey, we all want to weigh in on this particular uh, issue, right? We don't want just the single justice to make this decision. And so that's essentially the shadow docket. Now it's called the shadow docket. The reason it sort of has this, you know, quote unquote, shadowy name, right? It sort of is in the darkness. Um, <laughs> it does sound like something Harry Potter, by the way. Yes, yes. It's, this, this is Harry Potter in the shadow, in the shadowy docket or whatever. Um, <laughs> so um, but the reason it has this sort of like darkness surrounding it, right, this, uh, is because it was two reasons. Number one is it happens very, very quickly. And it often, and it happens without any kind of oral argument. And so there's no sort of like public argument um, that happens, at, which is uh, which is not the case with a regular Supreme Court case, where you have a public argument, a public debate um, in front of the Supreme Court as far as what's actually going to happen with the case. So there's none of that. It's just uh, you know the you know lawyers will file briefs, oftentimes very hastily constructed briefs that are usually not super long. Um, you know, normal Supreme Court briefs from lawyers are sometimes hundreds of pages long. These are usually like you know 10, 15, maybe 20 pages long usually because they have to do them quickly. It's time sensitive. Sure. Um, and the justices usually turn around uh, a ruling also very quickly. So they need to respond quickly. And sometimes because it's an emergency petition, they actually don't even give any reasoning. They just say, yes, we are issuing a stay on this law or we are overturning this decision by, you know, the, you know, the um, district or, 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 you know, or circuit court or whatever, you know, we are just doing this immediate thing. Um, and they don't even offer an explanation. And so that's part of the reason for the shadow docket, right? Is they, is you oftentimes don't even know why the justices ruled in the way that they did on a particular case. Um, and then the other reason it's called the shadow docket too is because, because it's not part of the merits cases, which are the normal Supreme Court cases that go through this long process, because it's not part of that, a lot of times reporters who cover the Supreme Court traditionally have not paid that much attention to the emergency appeals docket. Gotcha. And so the emergency appeals docket is usually kind of ignored by Supreme Court reporters because, you know, it's usually been things that are relatively mundane. It's like, oh, there's this emergency. Of course, the court ruled on it. Right. And it's usually not things that are of huge substance. Right. So how is this time different? So, yes. Yeah, so what's changed and this has really been talked about more in the last like really like four years. Right. This has become a thing just in the last few years where some Supreme Court reporters started to notice that the Supreme Court was handing down more and more substantive rulings through these emergency petitions. And they were making more and more sort of like substantive policy changes through these decisions that weren't necessarily then followed up with merits cases. And so they would make a big decision that would have a huge policy impact that would then never be followed up by an actual public argument. And so they started. And so that's why it started to be called the shadow docket, because these, uh, you know, court watchers, um, the, you know, these journalists suddenly realized, holy cow, like a lot is happening at the Supreme Court that we're not usually covering because we haven't been paying attention to this emergency um, docket. And so that's also why it's called the shadow docket because it was something that people oftentimes ignored. Um, okay, so that fast forward then to the current case. So Texas, um, several several uh, weeks ago, passed uh, was referred to as Senate Bill Eight, and Senate Bill Eight um, was effectively designed to ban most abortions in some ways, e even close to almost all abortions in the state of Texas. Anything six weeks after conception, right? Six weeks after, well, uh, fetal heartbeat, right? So once a heartbeat okay. can be detected, which essentially is six weeks, um, shorthand, um, then abortion is banned. And essentially, I mean, not to get like too bogged down in all the biology of this, but most women don't know that they're pregnant at six weeks. 
So at six weeks, you know, you're basically two weeks after your normal cycle. And most women don't actually, you know, haven't actually realized that anything is different um, at that point. And so effectively what this means is that the six-week ban, and it was intentionally written this way, would ban, you know, basically all abortions. Maybe not quite all of them, but, but would really ban the vast majority. Right. And so that was the intention behind the law. Now, what makes this different, right, the sort of like, you know, normally when a law like this is passed, and you know, I think, and we're, we'll probably talk a little bit later here about some of the other examples, and, you know, a particular example like in Mississippi, um, normally when something like this is passed, which the court has said is unconstitutional, that is something that usually goes to the emergency petitions docket. And normally there's a very normal and sort of perfunctory decision, which is to say they put a stay on it, right? The Supreme Court says, hey, yep. we've said in the past this is unconstitutional, you can't pass a law like this, maybe we'll have a merits case that will actually work through and maybe come to a different decision, right? But we're, but we're going to put a stay on the law. And so okay. a lot of people essentially expected the court to do that. What makes this particular case different is they didn't. So it's not so much what did happen as what didn't happen. So the court did not okay. put a stay on the, on the application of this particular law. And the reasoning given was because the Texas law was essentially written to try to avoid, um, you know, sort of the automatic court um, you know, basically, basically to try to deny, and again, without getting too technical, basically to try to deny standing um, mm -hmm. to anyone who wanted to bring a lawsuit. Standing is basically somebody has to be the person who is being harmed or is committing the harm, right? right. You have to be actually suing the right person who's committing the harm. And the Texas law, the Supreme Court argued, you know, that the folks in Texas who are arguing against this law had not identified the right people who are committing harms. And in fact, it's not at all clear who is committing the harms, according to them. So it was intentionally written to try to avoid any kind of legal challenge. Now, how does sure. it do this? Okay, here's how it does this. So it does this essentially by um, saying that enforcement of this law, so Senate Bill 8 says, in fact, prohibits any state officials in Texas from actually enforcing this abortion ban. And so in that way, you can't sue officials in Texas because they are specifically prohibited from actually carrying out the enforcement. Instead, the way this is enforced is through regular citizens uh, engaging in civil lawsuits against anyone who carries out or quote unquote aids and abets in an abortion. And so what that means then is anyone who's involved can be sued for $10,000 by a regular citizen as a civil matter. And so what that means then is the person who's actually doing, you know, if it's wrong, it's the person who's doing the harm is the person who's actually conducting the lawsuit. And of course, you don't know who's going to conduct the lawsuit because no lawsuits have been filed. And so it seems like there's no harm to this. But as a result, abortion clinics have essentially shut down because they've said, hey, we don't want to risk not only the doctors, but also the nurses, the staff, um, you know, the Uber driver who drives the woman to the clinic, right, whatever, right. from all getting sued for $10,000, right, which they say would just, you know ruin a lot of these people. And so, you know, so they don't want that to happen. And so they've essentially shut down. So the law has, in effect, shut down abortion in Texas. Um, By however, dint of the threat of these lawsuits. Right. Because of the threat yeah. of these lawsuits. And the Supreme Court has essentially said, and they said in their like one paragraph <laughs> response, which they don't always give a paragraph, but in this case, they gave us one paragraph of explanation. They basically said, because of the novel enforcement mechanism, it's not clear that the right people were sued. It's not clear that like standing was shown and all of this, all of these technical issues. Now, I think most people who watch the court see this as, you know, sort of like technical, a technical fig leaf, right? The court certainly could have intervened on this, um, but sure. they chose not to. And so, you know, this was this was an instance where they basically didn't do this. Um, and partially, you know, 
it seems to be, and I guess I'll give way here in a second because I'm sure Matt and other folks might want to jump in here, but it seems to be telegraphing that a majority on the court is ready to essentially say that, you know, abortion is not is no longer a constitutionally protected right, that this is not something that, that is going to be seen as, as uh, you know, as a right protected by the Constitution. And so let me... I'm going to dive in there and ask, yeah. Matt, if you buy that contention, which I've seen in plenty of national media too, is this a signal from the court that they're preparing to substantially alter or overturn uh, the standard set by Roe? Um, no. Um, and we'll get into reasons why I don't think Roe is about to be overturned. Um, but we'll get to that in a little bit. I think I think it's worth, we can do this without getting too technical, but I think it's worth, and Mitch did a really great job of sort of laying out what's going on. That was on great, with, thank you. With the case. Um, but I think it's worth sort of thinking a little bit about why the court did what it did. Um, so part of part of it is the court, um, the court does have this shadow docket um, that, you know, has been in place for years, but has been accelerating. You might say it's been, uh, the docket has been filling out. One of the reasons it's been filling out is because um, there's just more and more litigation um, that's coming up um, through the system, um, in which basically there is a state that, you know, that passes a law, right? Um, for example, um, this is you know, just one example, a state that passes a law. Um, and then what the other side does is they disagree with the law that pertains to a right. Then they run off and they basically file a quick lawsuit um, in basically a district that has a favorable judge, a judge that's going to rule in their favor to get sort of a nationwide injunction um, to basically make sure that this law is stayed, whether that's for the state or the, whether it's at the federal level, for example. And you have a lot more of these cases coming up. Um, so sometimes a shadow docket has been referred to as the rocket docket, um, basically, <laughs> because you have these cases that are designed to sort of like, they're basically shooting up the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court has to sort of whack them down. Right now, they're on summer recess, right? They've already had some big cases, such as the eviction moratorium, twice mm -hmm. now. Um, and so the Supreme Court has to deal with these. Um, and this law was passed actually some weeks ago. It was only very late in which the basically the plaintiffs in this suit um, who are suing to basically get the injunction, they filed very late. And then one of the Supreme Court to sort of turn around and issue sort of this, this relief. Um, so you have the time issue and the Supreme Court doesn't take kindly to being sort of um, sort of dictated to on like, hey, here's this really big thing. We expect you to, to issue a substantive ruling on this. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, so there's that. But then so the pro the, but the pro the pro abortion groups that filed the lawsuit were kind of sloppy. The debate delayed filing the case. They sued a person who filed an affidavit who's and this affidavit stated that he had no intention to enforce the law. Um, so, so it was a sloppy case. Basically what the Supreme court said in that short paragraph is we do not purport to basically resolve this substantive claim. We're not making any conclusion based on the, on the constitutionality of the Texas law. Um, and basically they're saying we want a real test case that we can actually deal with. And that test case has to go through, um, sort of the normal sort of procedures, which Mitch had, you know, just laid out. Which would lead us course, back to standing, correct? Well, yeah, standing is part of it, right? Um, um, but of course, that takes a lot of time. And the problem with this particular Texas law is it makes it very impossible or almost impossible to get under current precedent, which is very murky on this, impossible to actually get sort of injunctive relief because you can't sue the state. 
because the state is not the enforcement mechanism. All the millions of citizens of Texas are the enforcement mechanism. So what, what they're trying to do is you have to not sue the state and you can't sue the citizens. You basically, basically sue the judge who would potentially issue the, the injunctive relief to basically force the judge to do that. And the, the, the legal precedent around that is really murky and the Supreme Court would have to tackle that as well. Um, and of course, this brings us to basically another problem regarding sort of using the people as an enforcement mechanism, um, which Mitch can perhaps say more about because Mitch sounded off about this recently on Facebook. <laughs> and I think it's worth recapping that. And then we can kind of return to where things go from here. I think. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the issue here, and I think, you know, uh, again, you know, when, when, when in thinking about and thinking about this particular instance of, you know, an in, instance of, of, uh, of, yeah, judicial uh, gymnastics, right, that this Texas <laughs> is essentially trying to trying to engage in here. Um, I mean, the, the issue here is basically, and especially with the court choosing not to strike this down, right, to not put the injunction on it. It basically opens the question as to whether this kind of law is then going to be allowed, right? To what extent is the Supreme Court going to allow these kinds of laws to be to be put in place? Because the concern is this: if you know whether you you know whether you think Roe versus Wade is a good law or not, right? Is that was the right decision way back in 1973, etc., right? You know, regardless of what you think about Roe v. Wade, the fact of the matter is the Supreme Court has declared definitively, right, especially in 1992, that you know abortion is a constitutionally protected right. That has not been overturned, right? And so, as in terms of the law as it stands right now, right, essentially, you you know, the court has said you are not supposed to be able to restrict access to abortion at least for the first trimester, right? And so that's you know. That is essentially what they have established as the law, and that's essentially what the Texas law obviously is violating. And so the question is then, if that's the case, right, if there's no one you can sue, right, if there's no judicial relief for this, could this same exact form of law be used to restrict other constitutional rights? So basically the question is, what if you wanted to essentially say, you know, ban gun ownership? Could you just say, you know, we're going to pass a law that says every, you know, every citizen in a particular state can sue any gun owner $10,000 if you can prove they owned a gun? Um, because essentially, you know, effectively ban guns, right? Or in the mm -hmm. same thing, for like, you know, religious service, if you want to say, hey, you know, we want to ban a particular type of religious service. So, you know, we're not going to say, you know, and again, sort of the, the argument behind the Texas law is to say, well, it's not the state that's actually infringing on this right. It's the individual citizens who are bringing the lawsuit who are doing it. And so you can't, and so you, you know, this isn't actually something that the courts can rule on because it's not the state infringing on the rights it's the it's the citizens now that opens up a pretty big can you know that's a pretty serious can of worms uh you know there's already questions for us how far this can go and again the same thing how far could you take you know could you could you undermine people's rights and i think again that goes back to and i guess um, just sort of push back slightly on, on Matt's view of this. I guess I take a more apocalyptic view of it, <laughs> just in the sense. All right, that, let's wrap the apocalypse here, Mitch. How could this go terribly wrong? Yes, this. Could, yes, maybe that's yeah. I, I, you know, I, I just it, it does seem to me that the court, I think, uh, is is giving a lot more aid. A, a, you know aid and comfort in that sense to this kind of lawmaking and not issuing an immediate stay. I mean, it opens the question as to whether they're going to allow this and how far and what this means. Like, you know, it definitely like leaves a big, 
you know, gaping hole here. Um, and I think there's a lot of questions as far as what that means for what the court is going to do. Um, and I understand if the court, you know, I, I agree with Matt, the court usually likes to take a lot more time. They like to, you know, work through all the implications and things like that. But, you know, it's a pretty big deal, right? I mean, and it's, and especially, you know, the way the court usually tries to buy more time for itself is it does exactly, it issue stays, right? It says, we're going to pause this until we figured out whether it's okay or not. And it declined to do that. So anyway. Right. Well, as the layperson listening to you, both of you, and thank you for your nice, um, uh, under helpful understanding of what the court has been doing here. Um, if you hear in the news uh, that um, the Supreme Court has already decided on a major revision to American standards as it relates to um, abortion in the United States, hold your horses. We're not there yet. Um, this case is not meaningful in that way, but if you take Dr. Crumb's position, it might be terrible in a whole different kind of way. Um, and if you take Dr. Kupkum's position, perhaps this is simply worth waiting to see if this turns out to be quite that bad. So um, thanks, guys. This was super helpful. I feel better informed now. Listeners, hopefully you do as well. You can always uh, get in touch with us to ask us questions of things you'd like us to explain. Uh, you can do that by reaching out to us at electionshocktherapy.gmail.com. Make sure you check out the rest of our channel, too. It's Channel 3900, which you can reach at channel3900.gmail.com. We've got some great uh, podcasts like uh, Latchkey Kids, Avatar with Academics, um, and plenty of other things on the way as well. Thanks for listening, and we're back in your feed next time. Go Royals. Go Royals.